0: worshiping with us. Well, as I shared in the welcome, my name is John Chasteen. I serve as one of the pastors here. And uh, man, it's, it's an honor to, to bring God's word to you today. And, and I have been thinking about this word hope. If you're looking for an Advent devotional, I, I'm following a couple. One that I, I followed this past week is through the Bible Project, And what they do is they'll show one of their videos. This past week, the video was on hope. Actually, my kids, we sat down at dinner one night, and we're watching the video and talking about hope, and then it unpacks that throughout the week. And they describe hope as anticipating a future that is better than the present. Now, when we think about hope, and you think about what are maybe some of the things that you hope for, it, it it often can correspond with like a feeling, like feeling giddy about something or like excited. Like, what what gets you feeling giddy or excited? And I'm going to tell you guys, I'm going to let you a little bit into my world today. Some of you guys know this. Um, I am a little quirky at times. Tanner can confess. My wife's here, and and, and Ava's there as well. Um, deep down in in heart, like I dream sometimes of being a meteorologist. Anybody there with me? Who's there? Like. Hey, yes, let's go. Owen, yeah, I see you there. I mean, the weather just excites the mess out of me. I, I know like you're like, that just completely ruined this this sermon for you. Um, but like, I, we just stepped into meteorological winter, like December, right? And like, I just get excited thinking about pounds of snow just coming on us. Yes. Anybody else? Let's go. It's winter. It's cold. It ought to snow. I don't want to see rain. I want to see snow. Like, and and when I say, like, this gets me excited, like, I'm not just following the weather channel. Like, I'm following weather models. And I'm not lying here. Like, you can ask my family or those closest to me. Like, I, I could write my own forecast. At times, like, I've been encouraged maybe I should start a blog. You guys could follow me and I'll help you with all the weather here in Boston. Um, this gets me wicked excited. Maybe for you it's thinking about Christmas Day or, or like, some of the, the older young kids here um, in the room. And, and like this hope or longing for maybe that gift. Maybe, you know, you want some, some new drip or a new fit. Um, and if you didn't catch that lingo, you need to come hang with us in student group with the middle school and high school students and they'll te- teach you about that language. Um, but it's that excitement, that longing for something, that hope. When we come to the Bible, hope is such a central component to thinking about life. Right, like you, you, put yourself in Israel's shoes, and uh, you know as we think about Advent, and they're longing for this Messiah to come. When we participate in Advent, it's as if we're, as if we're recounting the, these hundreds and thousands of years of longing for God to send this promised one, and now He has come. And and as we've been studying through First Corinthians, there's no doubt that the cross of Christ is central to the gospel. Like Paul says, I, I'm gonna know nothing among you except Jesus, or I'm gonna preach nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I'm not minimizing the role of the cross and the crucifixion. But the resurrection opened up a new door of hope for us. Not only did it open up a new door of hope, it has secured that hope. You'll now read through the scriptures. You going to hear it talk about a living hope or the hope of glory. It's this hope that God is going to rescue all of creation from evil and death. But there was a problem at Corinth. And we're kind of shifting here. I know we've been talking about spiritual gifts for the past number of weeks. When we come to chapter 15, and you you know, like there's been different issues. Like why did God, why why did Paul write this letter to the Corinth? He's responding to some of these issues. There were questions and concerns related to the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of believers. For instance, some were saying, that there would be no resurrection of believers. And then others were confused, like how is this resurrection gonna happen and and what will our bodies be like? So, so what does Paul do? Well, he makes the implication extremely clear. He says, look, if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, my preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So yes, wait, We're going to talk about the cross and crucifixion, but the resurrection is just as important to our faith. And so what Paul does here in 1 Corinthians 15, and if if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and and turn there or or grab your phone and and open up your, your Bible app and turn there with me. Here's what Paul's going to do. He is going to unpack the essentials of the gospel and establish the historical reliability not only of Jesus' death, but of his resurrection. And he is going to argue that it is foundational to the Christian hope of the resurrection from the dead. And his main argument is this. God bodily raised Jesus from the dead, and he will do the same for you. Amen. Come on, let's go. That's good news. That is really good news. New, So let's turn to the scriptures here. Today we're gonna to be looking at verses one through 11 in 1 Corinthians 15. The word of God says this. Now I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you Then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Let me pray. Father, God, we thank you for your word. God, would you give us understanding? Would you illuminate our minds? And Father, we pray, God, would you pierce our hearts? with the truths of the gospel, God, that we could be able to say this is what we've received, that we stand, that we cling and hold to. God, would you reshape our lives around your gospel, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let me give you a few observations here, and then I want to unpack five truths that I, that I believe Paul's given us about the gospel um, just look in here, notice how Paul starts here. I would, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is what he is going to unpack. It's something that has been central, a central theme in this entire letter. Going back to 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, For I, um, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and then what he does is he elaborates on this gospel and the implications on their lives in chronological order. Like, how did they come to take part in the gospel? Here's how it happened. First, Paul preached. That was the initial. I preached. What happened when I preached? You received. That's the second thing. They received. Then it says, this is the gospel in which you stand. So he's looking past. You heard that. There was a time where you received that. You are standing on the gospel. And then this same gospel is what is going to help you to persevere. You are going to continue to do that. It is able to save you, as it says here, by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. This is the same gospel that by God's grace, he will complete the work that he started with them through this whole process. And then what Paul does is he gives us four verbs that summarize the gospel. And it's this, Christ died for our sins. He was buried, he was raised, and then he appeared. That's our structure here. It's pretty, like, the text here is pretty clear and laying out what Paul's doing in the structure. So here's what I want to do. I want to unpack five truths as we reflect on the centrality of the gospel and what Paul is challenging the Corinthians and what I believe is true for us as well. And the first one is this, the gospel is the culmination of the old, of the message of the Old Testament. The gospel is the culmination of the message of the Old Testament. As we, and I'm going to I'm going to unpack all this, but skip around a little bit at times. We pick up here in verse 3 where he says, I delivered you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for sins in accordance with the Scriptures. You hear that? And he repeats it again, right? He goes on. He says um, he was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with with the scriptures. What's Paul doing here? And I believe it's important for us to wrap our heads and minds around this. He is rooting the authority of the gospel in the Old Testament. And like you see this consistently throughout the New Testament. Like think about this. I know like we're holding our Bibles here and it's Old Testament and New Testament. What Bible did they have? It was the Old Testament when they're going and preaching the gospel in the book of Acts. What are they preaching from? They're preaching from the Old Testament. Like they're unpacking the the. Yes, they were also writing in the, like, God was forming the New Testament scriptures. Yes, they were sharing about what Jesus had taught them, but they're going back to the Old Testament to unpack, and this is exactly what Jesus did. Let me just recall some verses, maybe that, G, that you may remember Jesus said, John 5, 39. He says, you search the scriptures, what's that referred to? Old Testament you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. What is the they refer to? The Old Testament scriptures, they refer to me or Jesus right after he rose from the dead. He's meeting with his disciples in Luke 24. I love this passage. And uh, he, he says this. He says, these are the words that I spoke to while I'm still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, what's he doing there? Law of Moses, prophets, Psalms. He's referencing the tripartite sections of the Hebrew Bible. You guys heard about the, the Tanakh, right? So you've got the law. You've got the prophets, and you've got the writings. In student group, uh, not in student group, kids group, a few weeks ago, some of your kids, I brought my Hebrew Bible for them to look at. This is how it's structured. That's what Jesus is referring to. This as if he had his Hebrew Bible there, and he's like, that, who is it about? Who is it talking about? He's like, it's about me. And he continues, he says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You can tell, get a little bit excited about this. Here's why. Man, I grew up in the church, and for the longest, my mind was the Old Testament was plan A and New Testament is plan B. And there wasn't a consistent, coherent theme. But hey, if you're new to Christianity, here's what we, like we call it the Old Testament, but it is just as much authoritative as the New Testament. And it is a consistent story from beginning to end. Creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, the church, new creation. And this gospel that Paul was unpacking, he's like, this is just the culmination of that same message that you've already been reading about that you know. So when he says this, in accordance with the scriptures, I think generally speaking, he is saying that that the message of the cross and the resurrection are the climax of this story that God has already been teaching us. I think also The Old Testament gives us categories to understand the gospel. I'll give you a few here. For instance, like the categories of sacrifice and atonement and of suffering and vindication. Like when Jesus steps on the scene and it says, like, or John saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, like he's unpacking these categories, the Old Testament, that God providentially, like the Word of God is like letting us know so that when Jesus comes, we can see, that's what you were doing. Like God knew the end of the story. But I also think specifically, Paul's also thinking about Some specific passages in mind. I mean, as you think about the cross, like he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Like there's no doubt Isaiah 53 had to come to mind, right? You guys are familiar with that. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds we are healed. Maybe as you think about the resurrection, maybe your mind goes back to how the psalmist portrays this righteous sufferer that, that God delivers. Like a psalm, like you see Peter in Acts chapter 2. What's he quoting? Psalm 16. You will not let your holy one see corruption. Psalm 16, 10. Maybe there's echoes of like Jonah, right? Like we see Jesus even in the gospels, like Jonah spent three nights three days, three nights in the belly of a whale as a correlation to like his resurrection. What are the implications? You can stake your life on the gospel because it is the culmination of God's story of redemption in the scriptures. This isn't like something Paul's just coming up with and this like, this, no, he's like, this is what you've been reading about and no, this is the gospel that I preach and proclaim to you. The second truth I wanna share with you. The gospel is the good news of Jesus' sacrificial death. It is the good news of Jesus' sacrificial death. And really, I just want to unpack these words right here, that Christ died for our sins. What is implied here? Why does Jesus need to die I mean, Paul's not unpacking all this, but it's like we get this because I just mentioned the larger story. Creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, church, a new creation. When we go back to the fall, Adam and Eve dis, like, rebelled against God. They sinned against God, and as a result, sin spread like a virus infecting everyone and everything. And I'll clarify this. We are not as sinful as we could be. That's due to God's common grace. And this world is not as corrupt as it could be. That's God's common grace. But there's no denying that sin is corrupted, you, I, and this world. And so the message from the beginning, since Genesis 3, is God's commitment to reverse the effects of the fall through someone like Jesus. So when we hear these words, Christ, Christ, died for our sins, we're reminded that it is sin that separates us from God. You and I were made to flourish through intimacy with God. Like that's what life was made for. Like you were made to enter into, enjoy the presence of God for all of life. And without that presence, there is no flourishing. So when we think about these words, Christ died for our sins, I'm using these words particular. It's the good news of Jesus' sacrificial death. It is a sacrificial death, and it is a personal death. Christ died for our sins. Yes, Adam and Eve, but our sins. Christ died for my Sins. And when I think about unpacking the death of Christ, I want to give you two theological terms today. It's okay. It's all right. We're in a learning mode today, right? I want to tell you about expiation and propitiation. And I hope I didn't lose half of you here. And it's okay if you can't spell it right. But I believe these are helpful concepts as you think about the death of Christ. And I'm going to go back to this category of the Old Testament, and according to the Scriptures, of sacrifice. On the Day of Atonement, how many goats would they bring? What? Two. One of them is going to be sacrificed. And then what would they do with the other? The other, they would take, they would rub the blood on it, and they would send it out into the wilderness. And and this is imagery here for us to understand what's happening in the death of Christ. When I talk about expiation, here's what I mean. It's the removal and cleansing of sin and guilt through his sacrificial death. So because of Jesus' death, I'm cleansed and my sin is removed It's this picture of this goat's been sent off into the wilderness and God removes my sin as far as the east is from the west. That is very good news. And as we heard some baptism testimonies a few weeks ago, there is no sin that is too much or too big that would remove you from God's grace. It is is better and bigger than any sin, any consistent sin, any repeated sin. It doesn't match it. But when we think about propitiation, we think about God's disposition towards us. So God, being a holy God, me as a sinner, there is a righteous anger that we would call God's wrath that is towards me. There is enmity that's got to be dealt with. Because I was made to be with him, and in order for me to experience peace and reconciliation and restoration and nearness with him, that's got to be dealt with. That's what this word propitiation is about. It's about exhausting the wrath of God. So in Jesus' death, he completely removes the enmity that God has towards you so that now we can cry out, Abba, Father, you can be adopted as a son and as a child, and you can live with him forever. This is all unpacked when we say Christ died for our sins. I can confess that, and my sins can be removed, and then God's wrath can be satisfied through Christ and we can be reconciled, and Jesus did this for you. But in order for you to join in the benefits of the gospel, you have to confess, "I'm a sinner." And you know that that's really hard for for us to do. It's really hard. And and don't don't check me out here. I'm not talking about intellectually confessing that you're a sinner. I'm also talking about experientially knowing I am a sinner separated from God. Many of you guys have heard my daughter share her story. Ava Chastain sitting right back here. I'm going to share it again because for me it's one of the clearest pictures for getting this. My kids have grown up in the church. They, they hear, hear us talk about the gospel in and out of life. And, and so she could have told you, Christ died for our sins. He appeared, he rose, and he rose from the dead, right? Like she, she could have got the core of the gospel. One evening, we're reading through Pilgrim's, the kids' version of Pilgrim's Progress. And we get to this picture where Christian looks up to the cross and the burden on his back rolls away. And we wrap up. I don't think much. A friend stops by, and I'm like, hey, we just, like, prayed and talked, like, explicitly the gospel. like, hey, share your story about how God saved you. And AP3 shares his story. And then he leaves, and I'm putting all the kids to bed. I don't know where. Lee must have been hanging, you know, doing something with somebody. And so kids are going up to bed, um, and Ava crawls up in the bed, and we're upstairs, and, like, just weeping. And at that point, I realized, okay, this is the moment. Um, but I've got three other kids at the time. We didn't have Calen yet. And so I'm like, okay, hey, I'm going to come back. Let me like, get everybody else settled. And so I get everybody else settled, and I come back. And I'm like, hey, can you just like, like what's going on? I just want to listen. And these are the words that came out of her mouth. Dad, I know I'm a sinner. What happened? She went from confessing Christ died for her sin. She could have intellectually known the gospel and experientially that day knew she was a sinner separated from God and that night called out to Jesus and God radically saved her. That that is how we respond and enter into the blessings of the gospel and I'm praying that there's somebody here today that that's your story. That you say, I'm a sinner and I'm looking to Jesus. He died for me, I want that. The third truth, the gospel is the good news of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. As crucial as the death of Christ is, so is the resurrection. The the death of Christ would not be good news if the resurrection did not happen. It is good news because it is verified with the resurrection. Now, let me unpack a few words here. Go back to verse 3. I skipped over these intentionally. Paul says, I delivered to you what I also received. What, what is he like? Think about that language. I go to maybe UPS, right? Like it's Christmas time. I, deli- I received a package and I delivered Like, it, Like th- this is what he's describing here is what some would call a creedal tradition that he is passing on to the Corinthians. In other words, he was handing on a body of information that he had received from others that didn't include his additional words or comment. This is what I received. This is is what was delivered to me. This is what I received. And I'm just passing this on to you. Paul's insisting, that he is faithfully recounting the testimony that had been handed down to him. In other words, what he's sharing came from the very mouths of those who actually saw Jesus. Now, here's something really cool, and I wish I could unpack a little bit more for you. A guy named Justin Bass says this. When you survey the literature, scholars from all different backgrounds and faiths, including people with no faith, are virtually unanimous that this creedal tradition dates on average to within five years of Jesus' death. Some would take this back as early as like within months of his death. This was a formulation. Think about it. Like the scriptures were being formed here. This, This news is spreading. And this was basically them in creedal formation unpacking what is the gospel. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised in accordance with the scriptures and that he appears. Boom, boom, boom. And they could have... Wrote this off by memory, and this is what was being proclaimed. Now, you may not think that's a really big deal, but here's what like, what this is further confirming is that Paul's proclamation of the gospel did not originate with him. This was the news flowing right out of Christ's death and resurrection that they're just going and telling this is what Jesus did. Yeah. I'll unpack a little bit more of the implications of that in a few minutes. But I want you to catch that and not skip over that. So what happens here is we think about the resurrection. He says he was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then we have a list of everyone that Jesus appeared to. And it starts with Cephas. Who's Cephas? Peter. This was his uh, name in, in Aramaic. Um, Obviously, we know as Peter is one who's, who Jesus says, you know, on this rock, I will build my church. We know Peter was essential. Go back to Acts 2 and preaching at Pentecost. I think what we have here sandwiched in the appearances is Peter as, a, uh, as one of ministry to the Jews. And at the end here, the very last one is going to be Paul, who would have been God's minister to the Gentiles and then everybody else in between. So he appeared to Peter. It says, then he appeared to the 12. This would have been a, the 12 here would have been become a name at this point for those attached to Christ's closest followers. Obviously, it would not have included Judas here. Um, At this point, um, Matthias, where you can read in Acts 1, who was added to replace Judas, um, but like what would have been the 12th to fill his spot. You've got the 12. And then he says here, the crowd that was more Then 500 brothers at one time, most of whom have fallen asleep. No, he says, sorry, my mind went faster than what I intended to say here. All right, here we go. We're going to say that again. It says, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive, though some have fallen asleep. This is a sleep language. Not to harp a ton here it's a euphemism for death when speaking of believers because again the hope hey they're gonna wake up because of the resurrection of the dead um and then he says most of whom are still alive so what's going on here we've got a list here and this was a public letter that paul was writing to the church here and he's basically saying hey anybody like like if you have questions, if you have concerns, like, if you were trying to fabricate the resurrection, you wouldn't say, hey, these are all the list of the people who saw him, and they're all, most of them are alive. Like, go have it. You'd probably say, you know, I ah, mean, this person saw him, but, man, I'm sorry. They died, and, like, they can't verify it. And, like, you wouldn't do that. But, but Paul's saying, look, you've got more than 500. Let me ask you this do you think 500 could have hallucinations at the same time? Probably not, right? So like some of the like theories are like, well, maybe they hallucinated. You're telling me 500 people at one time all hallucinated that they saw the, reason, the risen Jesus. I call like, no, that didn't happen. But most of them are still alive. And where like this creedal tradition, where did it originate at? What were they, where were they sharing this? Where did it start? In Jerusalem. So it's not like, hey, I'm going to LA and I'm gonna share this and all these people alive are in Boston. It's like, no, they're sharing this in Jerusalem where they're saying, these are the people that are still alive, go see them. And they can verify that this really happened. Paul is inviting anyone who doubted that Jesus had appeared to people after his death to go talk to the eyewitnesses. It says, then he appeared to James. James here, he's not referring to James the disciple. This here would have been James, the brother of Jesus, who became an important leader in the church of Jerusalem. Go read Acts 12, Acts 15, Acts 21, Galatians 2. I'm going to draw out a point here in a second, but what do you know about Jesus' family during his earthly ministry? Were they on board? No, they were skeptical. What changed for James, the brother of Jesus? What changed his skepticism? I'll let you mull on that for a second. It says, then, after James, he appeared to all the apostles. It's not clear exactly, like, who would have been included in this group, It was larger than the 12. Maybe this, like, including James here and Paul, who would not have been a part of the 12. Um, Maybe he's talking about Matthias or Barnabas or Adronicus or Junia. Look at Romans 16. Um, And then it goes to, he says, Paul. Then, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Last of all here suggests that Paul did not expect there to be any apostles chosen after him. And so we usually distinguish from like capital A apostles who saw the resurrected and risen Jesus and those from like in Ephesians 4 where we've talked about, you know, apostles as those who have been sent or like missionary like. Um, So last of all, he appeared to Paul. And it says here to as one untimely born. I'll be honest here. This is a hard phrase. Um, so I'm going like, to lean on scholars. I'll give you a couple of options on like what's Paul doing here. Um, this word can refer to a premature birth, an abortion, a miscarriage, or a birth that goes beyond term. If it's like a birth beyond term, some see this as an appropriate explanation because Paul's appearance was later than the other's. So as one untimely born, or one that, man, like, man, I, I, you know, I know with Susie, we're praying that, you know, you don't want to go forty-five weeks. You want to go like, like you're like, come soon, quick, when the timing's right, like. But like that, that would have gone past the time. Like you're like, man, I gotta wait two weeks, and like you're long. Like that could have been a possibility. Of what Paul's talking about, another possibility, like if it's this abortion or miscarriage or premature birth, it, it could. One scholar says it conjures up the image of Paul as a grotesque infant whose birth experience was far from what might would normally be expected. In other words, he's highlighting the abnormal the abnormal nature of his apostolic call. In other words, he was persecuting the church, like of all the people that you may anticipate. Like he's like, I, I'm. This is not me. Like there's every reason in the world that, that this should not be me, which is why he further says, what's he say here? He says, uh, he, uh, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Another theme that we see in this section is God's surprising grace think about it. Who's the very pers- first appearance mentioned here in the list? Peter. What had Peter done in the garden? Yeah, he denies him three times. Like, he deserts Jesus. Hey, you're the one I'm gonna, like, and Peter's denied him, and, and now you have Peter who's, who's heading the list. It is a great picture of God's undeserved surprising grace. What about James? I've already alluded to this, but it doesn't seem like we have no indication that he was a follower of Jesus before Jesus' death. What we get from the Gospels is that was skepticism and potentially animosity from his own family. What changed for James? It had to be seeing the resurrected, risen Jesus. So God's grace there. What about Paul? He goes from church persecutor to church planter. Like God's surprising grace. And so I think a takeaway here is that God gives life to those who, humanly speaking, would be beyond the point of all hope. This is the good news of the resurrection. And so as we kind of wrap up that, that key point, the good news of the resurrection, the resurrection is a powerful historical reality. If you disbelieve the resurrection, I just honestly want to ask you this. What explanation do you have for how the Christian church got started? Because at the point of Jesus' death, Peter's denied him. The disciples have deserted him. How do you explain, Tim Keller says this. He says, "Um, the Christian view of the resurrection, absolutely unprecedented in history, sprang up full-blown immediately after the death of Jesus. There was no process or development. His followers said their beliefs did not come from debating or discussing they were just telling others what they had them seen themselves no one has come up with any possible alternative to this claim like check this out it's not like they're sitting around and they're debating and philosophizing and like discussing like all right what are we going to do that that's not the way it's described it's like jesus the risen lord met them and they were witnesses That's where Acts says, and you will be my witnesses. What are they witnessing to? Jesus is alive. That's the only reason we can explain that. And what happened to all these guys? Like, what does church history tell us? Every single one of them died or were willing to die for this truth. Whatever these people saw, it was worth giving their lives for. So here's a powerful question to engage our world with. What is that power that transformed the apostles' life, birthed the church, and turned the Roman Empire upside down? The only, like nobody's given a possible explanation for that outside of Jesus rose from the dead. The fourth truth. The benefits of the gospel are experienced through persevering faith. What does verse 11 say? Whether then it was I or they who preached. It doesn't matter who preached because we're preaching the same thing. It's in accordance with the scriptures. It's the tradition that's been handed. So it doesn't matter which apostle you heard this from because you guys remember earlier in the letter, what was happening? Oh, like I follow Apollos or I follow Paul. He's like, it doesn't matter because the gospel is the same. We preach. What do you do? You believed. Or we go back up to verses one and two, right? This is the gospel I preached in which you received, in which you stand, in which you are being saved. And then we have this phrase here that Paul says, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached unless you believed in vain. We don't contribute anything to the gospel. The gospel is news that we're called to respond to. And our response is repentance and faith. Christ died for our sins. I confess my sins. I turn from my sins. I look to him and I believe. And I continue to believe. Do you see this picture? Like Christianity is not like, man, I'm going to believe. I'm going to get my insurance card into heaven and then I can go live however I want. No, the gospel, this same gospel here, even if Paul hasn't made it explicit, is undergirding spiritual gifts, it's undergirding how they were to think about using their body, it's undergirding marriage, sexuality, all of this. The gospel is foundational and informing that. And it's flowing from a belief in that. So there's an initial, I respond and I believe, and then I stand on it. And I continue to believe over and over and over again. So my testimony is, God, you saved me. And today, I still believe you saved me and you will save me as I cling and trust to Jesus. I don't believe Paul was saying that those who are saved can lose their salvation. I don't believe Paul was saying believers never struggle with sin or failure. But what I do believe is that genuine salvation shows itself in persevering faith over the long haul. And it's an implicit warning for all of us to watch our life and doctrine. I mean, Paul's saying, look, if you reject the resurrection, there is no hope. There is no salvation that way. This is the pathway. Remain firm. Hold fast to this. And then finally, the fifth truth. The gospel empowers and shapes all of life. For those of you that have spent any time with me, you probably know that 1 Corinthians 15.10 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. In college, I was a part of Crew, and I spent, Lee and I actually, we spent a summer together in China with Crew doing mission. Um, I was supposed to go a second summer to China, but because of, I think it was SARS. Is that what it was? Like they had to redirect us. So I ended up in Central Asia and spent a summer there just like sharing the gospel. And I met a missionary there. And this was my fourth year of college. I was at that time really like trying to understand the grace of God. If it's undeserved, unmerited, and then like what role do I play in this? And I, I vividly remember, like I don't remember this guy's name. I could like picture him right now. In my, and, and he said, you need to go meditate on 1 Corinthians 15.10. Because what does Paul say here? I am what I am by the grace of God. Like God's grace, the gospel is shaping everything about me. But what does he say? And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Like, it's almost like there's a contradiction here, right? Paul's saying, my entire life is grace. It is undeserved, unmarried. And in the very same sentence, he can say, but I worked harder than anybody. I labored, I toiled, I strove, I gave it everything I could, yet, oh, 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 no, that was not me. It was the grace of God that was in me. And so God's grace does not lead to passivity. It's not like, Jesus, take the will. Like, that's not how we roll. Like, you strive, you labor. It's like a Colossians 129. There Paul says, him we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone until we present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. I labor, I toil, I struggle, but it's his energy. We give our lives to God. Every every ounce of energy. Paul is like inviting us in here as we understand the the cross and the resurrection to say, I want to be who I am by the grace of God. God, whatever you've given me, I'm going to labor, I'm going to work, I'm going to strive because I know you're powerfully working in me. God, here's my life do it. And I want you to do it in a way that you get the glory. So here's the cool part of what Christianity produces. If it's not producing humility in your life, then you don't get the gospel. Because none of us, it's not us. It is God's grace. He gets all the glory and the honor. It produces gratitude. I am what I am by the grace of God. So you can pray, God, would, would you help me so understand the gospel that it is creating increasingly humility in my life? Would you give me great gratitude for all that you are in Christ for me? And so the point that I want to leave you with is this. Cling to and build your life on the gospel of Jesus Christ. I get giddy about the weather. I can't wait for our first blizzard. We'll go sledding together. But you know what fills me with even more hope? It's the gospel. I was made for him. You were made for him. And it is secured through the death and resurrection of Christ. Let's give our lives to that. That gives us great hope here now and forever eternal life. I invite you to cling to Christ. Let's pray. Father. God, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. God, we thank you for this grace, undeserved, unmerited, surprising grace. God, I don't know who all sitting in the audience today. But God, my hope and prayer is that there's some James who who maybe been skeptical, but God, would, they would come to encounter that you are alive, and God, that you would give them new life today. Maybe there's a Peter who's been like denying. Maybe there's there's a Paul who's been a persecuting. God, would you build our church? God, would you lead us out today in confidence? God, there are many in our city. God, that need to hear the good news of the resurrection, that need to grapple with the historical reliability that Jesus is risen, the tomb is empty, and that he's died for our sins. God, give us courage, give us winsomeness, give us boldness. God, would your grace shape us? God, produce humility in us. God, make us grateful. And God, may we say with Paul, that his grace toward us was not in vain. It was not I, it was the grace of God that was in us. God, help us to labor, to toil and struggle with your energy for your glory and for the good of the city. God, we pray in Christ's name, amen.